And amen. Well, I didn't intend to take a two-week break. No pun intended. Some of you will get that on your way home. Um, but the first Sunday, I think it was the sixth, uh, we began a series. This was a short series called The Upward Call. And the message that time comes out of Ephesians 3, and we'll be reading that in a minute. So you may want to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And, and it has to do with, we, we looked last time at, in the beginning of the year is a good time to, to kind of step back and see where you are. It's a time where people make New Year's resolutions, uh, which is another word for guilt. Uh, and then that only lasts a few weeks. But it's a good time to look and reflect back on where we've come from and, and set ourselves from where, to where we're going to be going, personally as well as as a church. And we began with uh, this call, and we're going to look more at it. It's really kind of a theme for this year. And Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. And we've talked uh, quite a bit about that, and we'll, talk, we'll review that in just a minute. But I want to start by, by kind of going back a step and, and ask a question that if you've never asked it, you need to ask it of yourself, because God's asking the question, not because he doesn't know the answer, but he wants you to ask the question, and what's, what's the purpose of your life? What's the purpose of your life? When I was in college, when I entered college, I was not saved. And uh, I chose uh, as a major uh, to major in philosophy. It was not a very large class <laughs> because it's not a very lucrative subject. Um, but I did it for a very sincere reason. I sincerely wanted to know how to live my life. And I figured, which is what man's figuring is like, that the best way to understand that is to study how people smarter than I am worked that out and found that out for their own lives. And I came to the conclusion after two years of majoring in it that they didn't know what they were talking about. I had that suspicion when we started, but I was convinced when I finished. And, 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 but one of the things I learned in there is, is this is a question that's been asked by thinkers throughout all of time. Why are we here? What's the purpose of man? Why are we here? So I did, a, I did, a, a, I did a, a millennial thing. I googled it. I googled the question, why are we here? And, and the response was amazing. Every answer was a quote from the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Google's smarter than we think she is, or she is, whatever it is. And, and I saw from that, here's the, here's the point. The creation cannot determine its own purpose. The creation can't even figure its own purpose out. Years ago, this is before I was a Christian, there was a book that came out to try to help people feel better about themselves. I'm okay, you're okay. Anybody remember that book? So I read that book because I knew I wasn't okay. And, 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 and basically what the book says is, I'll tell you you're okay if you tell me I'm okay. In other words, we both know we're not okay, but if we think we're okay and you don't disturb my world of okay, I won't disturb your world of okay, so we'll feel okay. Okay? The problem was I knew I wasn't okay, and thinking I'm okay, saying I'm okay, doesn't make me okay. Because somehow instinctively in me was a realization, I'm not okay. All my thoughts are not pure. All my motives are not right. 
I have selfishness in me, and I have, and this is before I was saved, and it's not all gone yet. And so, so I don't know why I got off on that. Oh, okay. So it, it, you, the creation, that's an effort of creation trying to fix itself. It's trying to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. So even Google understands that we only can find out why we're here from the one who put us here. From the one who put us here. Knowing why you're here gives meaning to your life. It gives value to your life. It gives focus to your life. One of the greatest examples of that is when we come to the times of the, of the Olympics, both the, either the, the Summer Olympics or the Winter Olympics, and, and when they're showing these, these uh, uh, extra, the, the games, the, the networks that are doing that have done research on these athletes, and they'll show you stories of them. And they'll show like the, the figure skaters, how, you know, for the last four years before this, they've been getting up every day at five o'clock, four o'clock in the morning to go get their ice time on the ice rink. That they, 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 they discipline their body as to what they can eat. One of the greatest examples out there today, and this is a very timely thing, is the Patriots uh, quarterback, Tom Brady. They're astounded that this man, whether you like the Patriots or not, whether they do or not, they cannot deny the fact that this man, well into his 41st year, when most men are sitting home fat, I mean football players, this man's playing, if he's not at the top of his game, he's not that far from it. That's not an accident. He disciplines his body. He doesn't eat things you or I would eat. Why? Because he has a purpose. And that purpose governs his decisions. So when we don't have a purpose, when we don't have a focus, we don't have a focus, and we have nothing to govern the choices of what do I do this or don't do this. And, and so what happens when you don't have purpose, when you don't know your purpose, let me put it that way, you have a purpose. The question is, do you know what it is? And if you don't know what it is, then for you, you don't have one. And if you don't have one, then you don't have a sense of meaning to your life and that can lead to depression and ultimately can lead to suicide. One of the epidemics among teenagers in this day and age is suicide. I mean, all of their life's in front of them. Why would they ever ever entertain the thought of ending their life? Because they don't see a purpose to it. It's hopeless. And the world out there isn't presenting them with any great purpose or any great future. And the church has the answer. The church, you and me, the church has the answer. So the last time we began to look at the call or purpose that the Apostle Paul received. And so turn with me now to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to read down through verse 13 through verse 14 and then we're going to break it down. There's a pattern in here which I believe is the pattern for us for this year, at least in part. For we of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. 
Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. We talked about this last time. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now stop there a second. What Paul is saying here is, is the thing, these are the things I used to put my trust in. This is where I got my value from. This is where I got my significance from. This is where I got my identity from. And those things were his heritage, his heart's intention, and his passion for God's law and his deeds or works. Those were the things that he got his identity from and his value from. And notice what he says in this next verse. But all things, what things were gained to me, verse 7, these things I counted as a loss for Christ. In other words, he made an exchange. Yet indeed I count all things as a loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. The New, the, the New American says, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul says, all these things that I used to get my value from, all these things that I got my sense of purpose from, my heritage, that I was a Jew, Hebrew of the Hebrews, that I, was, I wasn't a proselyte, I was born into this. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the favored tribes. And I was, a, a, concerning the zeal and passion of my heart, I was a persecutor of the church. Why? Because I had a zeal for the good, for the righteousness of God. And under the law, I was blameless. These are things, Paul was quick to come up with the things he put his confidence in. What are the things you put your confidence in? about yourself? What are the things you built your life on and your self-image on? One of the ways we begin to know what they are is when it starts to crumble. When you find yourself not doing what you thought you used to do. Peter discovered that. Peter's confidence, the Apostle Peter, was in his devotion to Jesus. Absolutely confident. So much so, he was so confident in his devotion to Jesus that he told Jesus what to do on several occasions and what not to do. You've got to be pretty bold to do that. Even to the point near the end when Jesus said, I have to go to the cross, Peter says, I'll die with you. And Jesus bursts his bubble by saying, No, Peter, before this night is out, you will have denied me three times. Peter never dreamed he could have done that because Peter's confidence was in his commitment to Christ. We talked about this before. The only disciple left at the cross while he was hanging on there was the Apostle John. And as you read John's Gospel, John's confidence was not in how much he loved Jesus, but John's confidence was in how much Jesus loved him. So Paul is listing here his resume of the things he used to build his life on. He says, but I've traded them in. I count them all as lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. We talked about this before. I'm not going to go back over. Verse 9. And be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is what those were, which is from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, a righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, to be conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now we're going to get into what he's... This is how Paul, this is how Paul finished his course. 
This because Paul knew his purpose. Not that I've already attained, verse 12, or I'm already perfected, that's encouraging, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Paul says, I press on for a purpose. And the purpose is that I may grab, I may lay hold of the purpose for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Jesus has not only laid hold of Paul, but he's laid hold of you. You would not be here this morning because there are lots of other things you could be doing. There are lots of other things you could just have slept in. You could be out having breakfast. You could be doing many things, but you're here because at some point in your life, Christ Jesus laid hold of you. Sometimes we use the expression, well, when I found Christ, you didn't find him until he got a hold of you. And then you accepted that he laid hold of you. And so Paul says, Christ Jesus laid hold of me, but he laid hold of me for a purpose. And that's what we're going to look at today. Verse 13. Brethren, I don't count myself as to apprehend it or gotten there yet, arrived yet. But one thing I do, this is what we talked about last time. So the beginning of laying hold of the of his purpose and fulfilling his purpose is he had to forgetting what lies behind. Those are the things we went through in the earlier verses that he used to put his trust in. We have to let go of all those things and I'm not going to go back over those. We did those two weeks ago or three weeks ago. So we're going to look at what he is laying hold of. I forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I like that word reaching. He doesn't say, I reached. It's a participle. It's an ongoing thing. It's a constant reaching out. It's a constant reaching out. And, and that's an important to understand because even the context he's talking here is that Paul is saying, and, and, and if, if Paul hadn't arrived yet, then that gives me hope. God hasn't expected me to have arrived yet either. It's the process. There's a term that's become very popular nowadays among people, which is it's the journey. And it's almost becoming a little bit of a cliche. But the idea is, is that, that it's, you, you may never get there, but it's the process. I think I remember doing the premarital counseling for Pastor Kurt and Jennifer and talked about this. It's a, it's a lifetime journey together. And you'll change, and the issues of your life will change. But if you see it as you're taking a journey together, and it's not like something where I have to have arrived by a certain point of time, you're going through this together. And this is a journey of going through something with Jesus. And it's a process of constantly reaching forward towards this goal. You will, you'll have days when you'll think, I'll never make it. Am I the only one? You have, days, you have days when it just looked, you know, <laughs> we had an interesting night with Molly several nights ago. Molly's been wonderful. We have a crate for her, and she just went, in first night, she went right in the crate. We were told, you know, she could whimper and cry. She had no, she's never fussed at all. Thursday night, I put her in the crate. I go into bed, and she starts whimpering. And I think, okay, she'll get over this soon. She whimpered 
all night. By three o'clock, I'd had it. I went into the basement, and Anita got up with her. And so all of a sudden, and so the next day, it's like I felt like I was falling apart. I was making such great progress with her. And all of a sudden, it's like we took this enormous step backward. And I got up the next morning with only a few hours sleep thinking, this is never going to work. It's a failure. And it's like, and then what happened is I needed to put it in perspective. So I called one of our sons who's raising two dogs. And he helped me put it in perspective. He said, Dad, it's a process. It's just one event. And so the next night, just ever since then, she sleeps right through again. My point is this. It looked to me in that moment of time like this isn't working. It's falling apart. And of course, you know, the more you think about it, the worse it gets. You ever, ever been there? In marriage, you'll find out. I'm not sure this is going to work, but you don't have any choice. Right? Sometimes that's what keeps you in it. The point is this. In this journey, you will have times where it seems like you're never going to make it. It's one step forward and 14 steps backwards. And you'll get discouraged. And that's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to get discouraged that you're never going to get there. You're a failure. You're slipping back. And I want you to know you're not the only person that's ever had that, that thought. I have that thought. That's why he wants to isolate you. But so this is why Paul uses the term. Not that I've arrived, but I, whatever happens today, I don't quit. I keep reaching towards that goal. I keep reaching towards that goal. So you get up the next day and say, all right, yesterday wasn't, I didn't do well, do well yesterday, but I, today's a new day. I'm going to start again. I'm going to continue to reach towards that goal. Reaching, and I'm reaching forward. That's the whole message of this section of scriptures. Forward to those things which are ahead. Christ has things ahead for you. He has things ahead for this church. And we are to be reaching towards those things. In the book of Revelation, Jesus dictates a letter to seven different churches. And it's a different letter to each church, which is significant because it means he knows each church. He knew where each church was. And he addressed issues to each one of the churches. And the only church that got an F was the last church, the church at Laodicea. Why? Because they thought they were in great shape. They were comfortable. The term Jesus used was lukewarm. Lukewarm is neither hot nor cold. In fact, he said, I'd rather have you cold than lukewarm. Because when you're cold, you know you're cold. When you're lukewarm, you don't know where you are and you're comfortable. If you're hot, you know you're hot. If you're cold, you know you're cold. If you're lukewarm, you're just comfortable. And that's where so many Christians in the United States are. So many churches are just comfortable. We go through our comfortable routine. We sit in our comfortable seat. We read our comfortable Bible and we do our comfortable religious things and we're comfortable. And Jesus said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I'm not saying I won't go to heaven. He's just not happy with you. So we have to press forward. Verse 14. I press, here we're going to go, I press towards the goal. See, there has to be a goal in mind. There has to be something that causes you to keep pressing 
It's not just to press in general. It has to be pressing towards a goal. Pressing towards a goal. I've used this example before. Sprinters in, in the Olympics or in, in, in any kind of, of track meet. The sprinters that are running the straight races, the 100 yards, the 100 meter, they'll fix their eyes on a point and they're racing towards that point. And that point is always on the other side of the finish line so that they race through the finish line because they have a goal in mind. They have a goal in mind. I press towards the goal of the prize. So there's a prize involved. There's a prize involved. I was sharing with a group of pastors that I meet with once a month. The other day, we were talking about some things. There's a young pastor who's got a, 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 a good growing church, and, uh, but he's young, he's growing, and, and we, we have a good relationship. And, and I just share some of the battles and things that I've been through. And I, I was sharing with him the other day in this group. I said, I've learned to look at things this way. And I had somebody, a young man, ask me this question once. What advice would you give me to living your life, to making choices? I said, I look at it this way. I look at it from the end. What is the goal? I, what do I want to, at the very end of my life, what's, what, where do I want to be? What is that I want? And what the Bible says is somewhere at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before Jesus. And I'm going to give an account to him of what did I do with what he entrusted to me to do. Not what did I, what did I do compared to what somebody else did. Not what did I do compared to you? What did I do compared to Reinhard Bonnke or, or some great evangelist? What did I do with what he assigned me to do? And my goal is to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because to hear those words from my Lord is worth everything that I may have to go to through to hear it. And there are many days where I forget that. But when I get in the tight spot, when I want to quit, when I want to go back, when I want to whatever, just sit down and stick my thumb in my mouth and have a pity party. You're looking at me like you've never done that. <laughs> Boy, you're a spiritual group this morning. <laughs> or a bunch of liars. One of the... Uh, when I want to do that, what comes back to me, what the Holy Spirit awakens in me, I want to hear those words. And I get up, dust myself off again, and set my focus back on the prize. It's an upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. The upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. So what is that call? What is the upward call? Well, we're going to look this morning at a general call, and then we'll look after that at something more specific. Romans chapter 8. If you were not here last Sunday, we, I know it was a bad weather. We had a second service, which, by the way, first service people are allowed to come to the second service. <laughs> I just don't, I want to let you know that. We don't look at you and say, well, you're first service. You can't come second service. You know, so I think some people have the tendency, well, the first service was canceled, so my service is going. It's not your service. It's you can come second service. We do, we do let, let you in. So, 
Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, we could spend a year on this chapter, but I want to look here at a specific thing. We're going to start in verse 28. And this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. People quote this that have no idea what they're saying. We know that all things work together for good. And that's about all that verse most people know. All things, well, everything's falling apart, but we know all things work together for good. No, the verse doesn't end there. There's a condition. For those who love God. For those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Oh, I forgot what I was going to say about last week. Pastor Kurt ministered. I had asked him to do it before, and, and he ministered on the call. There's a great graphic they had up there of a cell phone. And, and his point was this. He used Moses, a great example. Uh, is there's a difference between hearing the call and accepting the call. So if you were not here, or even if you were, you need to listen to that. Because a lot of times people, we, we listen to the call, we hear it, and think we've accepted it just because we've heard it. And he used Moses as a great, great example of that. So, all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. This verse is not saying that whatever happens in your life, God's going to turn it for good. Uh-oh, I just shook some people up. It says that, but for a purpose. First of all, whatever happens in your life, God didn't cause. There's whole parts of the body of Christ that believe whatever happens, God brought into your life, because God is sovereign. That's not what sovereignty means. Sovereign mean, doesn't mean God does everything He wants to do. Because if He did everything He wants to do, everybody would be saved. Right? Sovereignty means He's boss. There's nobody higher than He is. And a sovereign God, as a sovereign act of His sovereign will, gave you a free will. And He will respect the judgments and decisions you make of your will. Secondly, God, right now, is not the God of this earth. Satan is. The Bible is very clear on that. So Satan's the one that's causing things to happen. God, we know that God... Let's keep verse 29. Let's go on, because... Let's stop there. Because the all, God causes all things to work together for good, first of all, for those who love Him, and who are called according to His purpose. So there's a connection to His purpose and Him working all things to your good. There's a connection to your purpose and God working all things together for your good. They're not isolated subjects. Verse 29. For whom He foreknew, don't get hung up on that, he predestined, don't get hung up on that, because we think predestination means God decides ahead of time who goes to heaven and who doesn't. That's not what that means. It just means planned for ahead of time. When our, our family that's coming over like at Christmas time or things like that, and our kids that don't live here are coming home, my wife starts planning for a Christmas dinner months ahead of time. She starts planning for Christmas. She pre-plans for what's going to happen. 
And that's what this word means. Predestined means planned for ahead of time. So whom God foreknew, he knew everything about you beforehand. He planned ahead of time. Now we're talking about what, what this upward call is. To be conformed to the image of his son. The upward call, we'll see it in the next verse. Don't go there yet. The upward call, God is calling every one of us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And with that purpose in mind, God will take whatever happens in your life and work with it to help conform you to that image. That's what verse 28 means. God will take even the bad stuff that happens in your life and use it to perfect you into the image of Christ. This is a great example. God didn't trip me. God didn't mock me down. And I have to make clear, Molly didn't trip me. I've got to defend Molly, because some people think that dog tripped. No, at my own, my own stupid wrong step, because I wasn't paying attention, and I got overtired. God had told me to pull aside and to rest, and I didn't listen to Him. And after a while, you don't listen... God will just let you go. And now I'm listening. Because I had to rest. My mother used to have an expression, those that don't listen, feel. She was right. But His call, the general call that God has for every one of us, He's at work in you to conform you into the image of of Christ. We've got to move along here. Okay. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, planned to edify, he called. So this is the call. He called you. And whom he called, he also justified you, made you right in God's eyes. So see, God didn't save you so you could avoid hell and go to heaven. I mean, he did, but that wasn't his ultimate purpose. See, when I got saved, that's what I thought. I thought I got saved from hell, and I got saved into heaven. Which, If that's it, that's great. But God's purpose is much better than that, bigger than that. God had to, had to, had to pay for your sin. He had to justify you in order to make you into the image of his son, because his son's holy. How could He begin to make you into someone that was like His Son if we're sinful in our nature? So God has to change your nature so that you can begin to be like Him. But His goal is literally, this is not some figure, His goal is to transform you and me into the image of Christ. And by image, it's not the physical image, it's the character, the nature Just as Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he is the image in flesh of the Father. And the God's plan is that if they've seen you, they've seen Jesus. If they've seen Jesus, they've seen the Father. And that's especially true for the church collectively together. It's not just true for us as individuals. It's true. That's why Jesus said, they'll know what I'm like by the way you love one another. By the way you get along with each other, they'll know what I'm like. 
whom he justified, he also glorified. We can't really get into that one this morning. That'll get us off. All right. So let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. So the point is here, the upward call, the goal that God has for you, the picture, the model. Well, when we, when we did this, we did this stage. We hired an architect and we sat down with him and said, this is kind of what we want to do. This is the functionality one of it. We have concerts, so we need to be able to do that. We want to have a little more contemporary, modern look. I need a little more room to wander around because I don't like just standing. On, remember, those of you been around a lot, remember the little runner I, we would stand on out here? Well, this, so there was some functionality. But, so they came back with some drawings of renderings of ideas of what we could use. And then those were used for the contractor to begin to build what we saw. Well, God has a blueprint. He has an architect's rendering or drawing of his goal for you. He has an architect's rendering of his goal for this church and for his church. It is to conform us into the image of Christ. Nothing less. Now, Paul says himself, I didn't get, I haven't gotten there yet, but I press. I press towards that goal. So let's look at how God's doing this. So Philippians, let's go to verse 2, chapter 2. Very familiar verse. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. This is a verse that's been just resonating with me. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is at work in you. God is at work in you. It's God that's at work in you. It's God that you said that. Yeah, but you got to get the weight of that. It's God that's at work in you. God's not standing on this is what religion has God standing on the outside saying, Ron, this is you need to get these things straight. You need to stop doing this. You need to do this more. You need to straighten up and fly right, Ron. So that's what the religion tells you God does. No. God comes inside of you to live inside of you by the Holy Spirit to empower you to first of all change your conscience. He says in, in the Old Testament in several places, I'll, in the New Covenant, I'll write my laws not on tables of stone. I will write them on your heart. This is why in the New Covenant, our conscience is infinitely more important than it ever was in the Old Testament. We don't talk much about that. Maybe we will this year. So God is in you. Not on the outside. He's working inside of you, first of all, to change your will. And then to change what you do in accordance with that will. I mean, think about that. Because when you, when you think of, well, I'm supposed to be like Christ. I can never be. But it's God that's at work in me to do that. It's not you. You'd never make it. Neither will I. But God's working in me to do it. If God is working in me to conform, then how can God fail unless I don't cooperate with Him? I'm telling you, this just rolls around me. But it's God that's at work in you. I see people struggling all the time. But you understand, it's God working in you. It's not you. 
It's not your determination. It's not your strength. It's God working in you. He knows what He wants to do. And He's working in you to will and to do His. And this is where the rub comes. This is where the rub comes. He's at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure. I've said this before, it's been a while. Often we as Christians see God as a resource to help us out of trouble. We see God as a resource to provide what we need. And He is. But He's not just a resource that you keep on the shelf or keep in your glove compartment and when you need Him, you pull Him out. And He's gracious and kind and often He'll do that. But He's at work in you to change your will. To be lined up with His will. To do His good pleasure. Verse 14. Well, that's it. Verse 13. Galatians chapter 5. We'll come back to Philippians 2 in a minute. Galatians chapter 5. What we're looking at this morning is what the upward call is. The upward call is God is calling us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And what does that mean? Galatians 5.22 Now I just said to you, God is at work in you. We read that out of Philippians. How does He do that? It's by His Spirit whose He causes to live in you. And His Spirit is trying to work in you the character of Christ. The Spirit is at work in you to work in you the character of of Christ. So the Spirit of the living God in you and in your spirit has certain fruit that He wants to produce in your life. In other words, character, character that resembles Christ's character. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, that's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control against such there is no law. So these are the characteristics of Christ that the Spirit of God who lives in you is trying to bear fruit in your life. good example of this is in the church at Corinth. Paul writes a letter to them because the church at Corinth was a very outwardly spiritual church. They had the gifts of the Spirit operating there in abundance. All the miraculous gifts were operating. The, 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 the speaking gifts were operating. Prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues. All of these things were operating. But Paul writes to them and says, I know you're very gifted in the spiritual gifts, miracles, and all these outward signs that we tend to look at as being Christ-like because he did those things. He performed miracles. He did amazing things demonstrating that he is, the, he is the Son of God. But Paul says, you're carnal. You're acting like mere men. Why? Because there was envy, jealousy, strife. They were fighting with one another. They had factions in the church. So when they had a communion service, they had this group sat over there and they brought their bag lunch and they wouldn't share with the people over here that were hungry. There was a squabble going on in the church about who was the better teacher. Some said, I'm a Paul. 
Some says, I'm of Apollos, who was a teacher. And Paul says, has Christ been divided? So the point is, they looked outwardly very spiritual. But what God looked at is the inner heart, the character, the nature. Many people in ministry rely on their gifts and on their anointing, not allowing God the opportunity to develop the inward character that's necessary to sustain it. Ed Cole, and many of you don't even know who he was, he was a tremendous minister to men. He had a saying, he says, your talent and your anointing will take you places that your character may not be able to sustain. So the question is what, isn't what talent you have. The question isn't what anointing has God put on you. The question is what's your character. How Christ-like is your character. But the good news is God is at work in you, both the will and to do His good pleasure. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as his divine power has given to us, not will, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he's already given to you and me all that's necessary for a life of godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us. Have been given to us. Not when you get to heaven, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, listen to this, you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that was in the world through lust. So Peter is saying that when you came to Christ, God through gave you promises, and through your believing to these promises, you become a partaker, share of God's nature. God is at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. How does this affect us? It changes how you see yourself. Because all of us have an image of ourselves based on what we heard when we were raised, how well we think we performed in life. Some of you have an image that's very weak or very terrible. You think, I've always failed, I've never succeeded, I never finished school, I didn't do this right, I didn't do this right. Some of you may say, well, look, I've, my first marriage failed, I'm a failure at relationships, my kids are out of control. All these things about what you've done with your, what you've done with your life. And that image affects your pressing forward toward the upward call. Why would God use me? I've failed over and over again. How in the world could God ever use me? Listen to last week's message by Pastor Kurt, because he talks about Moses. Moses failed in his first attempt to answer his call. Spent 40 years in the backside of the desert and in his own mind, I'm convinced, he thought he was done, he was finished, it was over with, because he failed. Because he knew he was the deliverer. What he didn't realize is those 40 years where he thought he failed, God was training him 
to take care of someone else's sheep in that wilderness. Because over the next 40 years, he was going to be taking care of God's sheep in that exact same wilderness. So God was causing all things to work together for Moses' good to carry out the call that God had on Moses' life. So it's important that you understand that it is God at work in you. God has put His nature in you. You don't have to become perfect. You don't have to become good. God has put, if you're a Christian, now if you're not, we'll take care of that before we're done. But if you're in Christ, God has put His nature in you, and He is at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see yourself. Let's go. Um, let's go back to to. Um, let's go to First John chapter three. Got to move along here. For those of you that downloaded the notes, this scripture won't be in it, but I added it this morning. First John three. This is some of the most amazing statements in the Bible. If it were not in the Bible, I, I wouldn't have the courage to say it. Behold what manner of first John three we're at one. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it does not yet been revealed what we shall be. This is the upward call. But we know that when he is revealed, when we see him that we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That verse is saying when Jesus appears and we see Him, spirit to spirit, we're going to look at Him and we're going to look at us and realize, I'm just like Him. I'm not talking about how you acted this morning on your way to church. I'm talking about your inner nature, the divine nature that God has put in you. When we see Him, we're going to recognize that we are like Him. We as our brother, we are children of God, joint heirs together with Christ, that we be conformed to the image of His Son. Let's go over to chapter um, 4. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, so that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so are we in this world. He's not talking about how you're acting. He's talking about your inner nature, the divine nature. Okay, so what do we have to do to answer this call? God's trying to call out this inner nature. Oh, we've got to move along. Go back to Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved son, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about work so that you go to heaven. He's take work out. Take the nature that God has put in you and your cooperation is to help work it 
out. Begin to exercise your will in accordance with God's nature on the inside of you. And that's when verse 13 says, For it's God who works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. Let's go over to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul has just spent the first three chapters talking about what they were called to and and that they're children of God. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Paul had a pattern here. Not all of his letters, but some of his letters were written to correct certain things in certain churches. And his pattern was this. Paul wouldn't start by saying, you bunch of turkeys, this is how you've been messing up. You need to straighten your act up and get things right because I'm going to come there and I'm going to come there with a strong stick and straighten you out. No, Paul would say this. He would remind them of who they were in Christ. He would remind them of who they really were. He would remind them of what God had done in them and was doing in them. He would remind, then he would say at some point in the letter, there's a switch over. Now act like who you are. Act like who you are. Because there's an enemy out there telling you who you are, but that's what we're to forget that lies behind. Now let's drop down to verse 20. Uh, excuse me, no, verse, um, yeah, verse 20. But you've not so learned Christ, if indeed you've heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt in accordance with the seedful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is saying, here's what you've got to do. God has put his nature in you. Now you've got to wear it. You've got to start acting like who you are in Christ. You've got to start acting like Jesus. And the ability to do that is in you, and you'll find as you start acting like Him, you'll find the ability will start to flow out of you, because that is your nature. And here's what He gets into. And let's, yeah, let's go over quickly to Romans chapter 12. And we'll end here. And we'll pick up here next week. Because here's the problem. All that I've said this morning is right out of the Bible. It's true. God has put His nature in you, if you're a Christian. God is at work in you, both the will and do is good pleasure. But we have to put that on. We have to act in accordance with who we really are. But here's where the battle goes. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, he's just spent 11 chapters telling them what God's done for them. And here's the turning point. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2. I build a whole course around this verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or establish what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That word transformed is a very powerful word. It's a word metamorpho, which is used for metamorphosis, for changing a caterpillar, metamorphosis, changes (laughs) into a butterfly. All right? But if you really study that word out, 
There's two words in there that, con- that contrast. Don't, don't be conformed to this world. That word conform there means the outside pressure of a mold or a stamp. When they stamp coins, they take a piece of metal and pressure into a form to form the outside to look like that mold. That's what that word means. So the world is always trying to pressure you on the outside to look just like the rest of the world. Because Satan knows what's on the inside of you. So he couldn't stop you from getting saved. So everything he throws against you is to keep that salvation on the inside so that Christ on the inside never shows up on the outside. Because if he shows up on the outside, he'll start affecting other people. But if he can keep it bottled up inside of you, then you will have no effect. He, God can have no effect on anyone else through you. That's what the word conform is. But instead, be transformed. That word has a very different meaning. It literally means, if you study it, to take that inner nature that's down inside and allow it to come to the outside. And how do we do that? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By changing how you think about yourself, about the people around you, about circumstances that come against you. The beginning of it is just change how you think about yourself. Forgetting what lies behind Most of us think about ourselves based on our carnal nature, based on our history. Well, you know, you've never never succeeded in anything. I've never gotten, I never finished school. I failed at one marriage, maybe two marriages. I've never been able to do anything. I'm not very smart. I came from the wrong side of the tracks. I'm of the wrong color. I'm of the wrong... All this junk that floats around in our mind that forms an image of who we are, which keeps bottled up who we really are, on the inside of it because very few of us really think of ourselves as Christ well I'm Christ going into this situation it's Christ in me but it's all full through the word Paul says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me if any man be in Christ he's a new creature Christ in you the hope of glory It's Christ in you. It's Christ in you. For God is at work in you. For God is at work in you. I'm telling you, it's so strong. God, God, Almighty God is at work in you. That's who you are. Yeah, you may be a failure on the outside. You may be a failure somewhere. But it's God that's at work in you. God's not a failure. And He's called you. To an upward call. To be conformed to the image of Christ in every challenge in your life, every obstacle in your life, even every failure in your life. God is at work in that to use it to strengthen you, to develop patience and steadfast in you, to develop the character and nature of God. That character is developed far more by going through difficulties than it is by sitting on a beach in Bermuda, (coughs) sipping iced tea. Next week, we're going to more specifically look at what it means to renew your mind. We're going to look at the mind of Christ. Oh, get ready.
Because I hear a lot of preachers say, well, I have the mind of Christ. I can do all things because I have the mind of Christ. We're going to look at what the Bible says the mind of Christ is. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are long-suffering. Thank you that you are patient. Thank you that you are kind. Thank you that all those fruit of the Spirit that we read is your character and your nature displayed towards us. And Father, you're calling us personally, individually, and you're calling us as a church. Help us to forget what lies behind and to embrace the call that you would conform us to the image of your Son because you've made us to be sons and daughters of the living God, joint heirs with Christ. Father, help this realization become a reality in our minds and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Right now we're entering the most important part of the service.